So I've been spending a whole lot of time with the Father. In various ways, when I lay, my, when I lay down to sleep at night, sometimes I'll just go into a closet, lights off. I know that may be kind of weird for some of you, but I just want to get close to him. There's a reason for that because uh, I'm married. Uh, my wife, Brooke, who some of you uh, may know in the children's ministry over there, I have, uh, I'm a father to three of the sweetest boys uh, that you'll ever meet. And uh, every week, I have the opportunity to steward a ministry of, depending on the week, between 50 and 100 students uh, on Wednesday nights. And so because I have been given the opportunity to steward such influence in the kingdom of God, I have to be careful about what is influencing me. There are a lot of people and a lot of messages and uh, a lot of uh, media that speak messages uh, and communicate things to me on a daily basis. And I have to be reassured, I have to be prayed up, I have to be confident in the identity and the purpose that God has given me. Because if I'm not, then any of those things that are getting communicated to me that are not true, I might believe. And things start to get a little tricky if that happens. So Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he actually alludes to a concept that I want to introduce regarding something that I was just speaking of. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul introduces this concept of a stronghold. And this morning, I want to take a moment to explain what I found that to be in my life uh, and what it looks like. So you can go ahead and put that first image on the screen if you don't mind. This is my interpretation of a stronghold. Yes, I do a little graphic design. If you want to come see me afterwards, I'll charge about $100 an hour. I'm just kidding. Somebody said that it looks like I did that with an Etch-A-Sketch. Appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, strongholds. Paul uses some language here. He's talking about strongholds. Let's just communicate what that looks like. So, I have two significant ages in my short lifespan that I think about often. The first age is when I was 19, and the second age is when I was 23. When I was 19, by the time I was 19, I had been verbally abused, sexually abused, addicted, and codependent. Sometimes those get confused as the same thing. Addiction involves substances, codependent involves relationships. And I had, because of all these things that had happened to me up until the point of 19, I had developed this series of foundational beliefs. And we always make our decisions based on what we believe. And so because of these things that had happened to me up until the point where I was 19, I had come to this conclusion, I had made this decision that the best thing for me is to to not exist anymore. At 19, I had my first suicide attempt. Obviously, uh, it did not work. Otherwise, somebody else would be delivering this to you this morning. 
So the other significant age is the age of 23. 23 is when I got my first call into ministry. And I decided that I didn't want to end my life anymore, but I wanted to start helping other people who felt the same way that I did at the age of 19. I started to educate myself on what it would be to be a public speaker. I started to read all the old school Dale Carnegie books and Nito Kubang books, how to be a great communicator, how to win friends and influence people. And my grandfather was actually the first person to give me my first opportunity to speak in front of people. I was the student pastor at his church. There was a total of four people in my ministry. And I finally received my first opportunity to speak in front of people. So I got my Bible out. I had no idea how this was supposed to work. And I found some of my favorite scriptures. And then I pulled out an old school Matthew Henry commentary. Some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. So I pulled out this commentary and I just tried to memorize everything that Matthew Henry had written about the scripture. It's almost like I was trying to take what C.S. Lewis said and make it my own. It wasn't working out very well, but I had memorized everything that I was supposed to talk about that morning. And I showed up, got up in front of the folks, pulled up my Bible, started to read the scriptures. And when I was done reading the scriptures, I looked up and made eye contact with four people. And I forgot every single thing I was supposed to say. But I had a good plan. Here's what I did. I closed my Bible. I put it under my arm. I walked off the stage. I got in my car and I drove home. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. I left those people sitting there and I said in my car, I will never speak in front of people again. Scott and Brent are here today, so if I just peace out, at least there'll be someone to wrap this up for you guys, okay? Matter of fact, some of you guys' faces, I'm just leaving now. Okay. So, obviously, I had developed a new set of foundational beliefs because despite what I said that I would never speak in front of people again, here I am. So, what happened? What happened between the age of 19 to 23, How did the transformation begin in my thought process that would lead me from wanting to end my life to wanting to help other people who wanted to end their lives? It's the concept of a stronghold. When I was 19, the reason that I arrived at the decision to commit suicide is because I believed that I was unloved and unlovable. And so... If there's anyone in here that believes something similar, let me just go ahead and tell you what I have found. That is a lie. And that is the very first foundation that the enemy uses to build strongholds in our lives is a lie. So how did it get there? Did I just listen to my circumstances and my situations? Hmm. Circumstances and situations do not tell us lies, but they confirm them. And so, how did it get there? In Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent is usually, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree and the garden? This word crafty here 
is a root word that means to make bare. To make something bare, it actually has to exist in the first place. So let me just clear up this idea of crafty, because there's a difference between a crafty person and a craftsman. Some of you folks out here are crafty, like me. Some of you folks are like David Byerly and are craftsmen and women. A craftsman can take a concept or idea, they get it, it pops in their mind, and they can pull together the resources that they need, and they can, can create it out of nothing, out of thin air. It goes from nothing to farm table. Bam. Now, some other folks in here are crafty, like me. One time, we have this deck at our house. If you ever come over, I will show it to you. I will parade you around and be like, look at this deck that I got. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. Did you build this? And I'll say, yeah, I did. But really what I did is the deck was already there, and I just tore the railings off of it and put cool new railings up with some string lights over top. So the deck had already existed. Now, some people get smart, and they say, now, was the deck already here? And I'm like, yes, it was. Party pooper. But this is the contrast because God is the craftsman. He spoke everything into existence out of nothing. Our enemy is the exact opposite of God. He cannot create anything. So he has to take something that already exists, like the truth, and twist it so that we believe it. The thing about lies is that they're just shy of the truth. Because if we knew that they were lies, then we wouldn't believe them, would we? So he twists a little bit, and we believe it. This is how the enemy begins to set up residence in our minds. Satan wants to steal the truth and make it a lie. He wants to kill any living thing that God has created, and he wants to destroy any foundation of Christian identity you have. John 10.10 says, "The The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and life more abundantly. So there is a second attribute that the enemy uses to develop strongholds so that he can build permanent residence in your life, and that is the idea of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Fear always keeps us from intimacy with the Father. When sin, when Adam and Eve believed the lie and sin entered the world, what did they do? They ran and they hid. They ran and they hid from the Father. It affected their intimacy with him. My coworker at a job that I had before here, dealt with a lot of shoulder pain and uh, I was coming to church here during that time and I was so convicted every day that uh, of the shoulder pain that I should pray for my coworker, and I never did and it was all based on fear I didn't know how I would react I didn't know what he believed but fear kept me from that moment of intimacy. Think of what would have happened during that moment if I would just would have prayed with him, what would have happened between his potential relationship with the Father, with my relationship with the Father. Fear always keeps us from intimacy with the Father. One of my early clients during my internship 
was a 16-year-old boy. I'll just call him C for these purposes. So C came to see me. And uh, he was there because his grandmother brought him because he had anger problems. As a matter of fact, the reason that she brought him in is because he had stabbed his cousin in an argument. He believed what had happened to him is that his parents gave him up for drug use. DSS had obviously come in and taken him away. His grandmother was raising him. And he believed this lie that everyone close to him would commit an injustice towards him. And he would never be justified. And so he believed that he had to get his own justice. And so this argument happened between him and his cousin. And he started, this fear started to creep in. I'm being unjustified right now. This is an injustice what's happening to me. And so out of fear and out of lack of control, he stabbed him. Fear is another attribute that the enemy uses to set up residence in our lives. On top of that, you have a vow. Now, a vow is a personal promise that excludes anyone else. Is a personal promise that you make to yourself. And there may be some who disagree with this particular idea that I'm going to present, but I first started to notice it in marriage vows. Because even though it appears seemingly that you're making a promise to the other person, it, the, it's actually unconditional on their behavior. When I stood in front of Brooke and I said, I vow these things, I said, regardless of you, Regardless of your behavior, this is how I'm going to be. I'm making a personal vow to myself about my attitude and my behavior. I've had the unfortunate uh, experience of doing um, postmarital counseling. And some of these instances, uh, one of the spouses have been um, sexually assaulted at some point in past history. And after all these years of marriage, they come in and they sit down and they talk about their issues. And one of the spouses, they end up saying, no matter how close I try to get to this person, they always push me away. It's because the person who was sexually assaulted, they make a vow to themselves. I will never let anyone hurt me this way again. The enemy wants us to make a vow so that we will be alone. He also wants us to make vows because we break them. How many times have you made a promise and then you didn't follow through on it? No matter if it's big or small. What happens when we break a promise? We feel shame. We feel shame. The enemy wants us to feel shame. The root word for shame is dishonor. God wants us to feel honored. Something that won't be on your screen here that I just thought of. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves before a mighty God so at the proper time he will honor you. The enemy uses vows to make us feel shame and dishonor. He wants to steal and take away everything that the, that the Father has for you. So a vow, 
leads into a mindset. Have you ever dealt with anybody who just will not listen to you? I do it every week. They're called teenagers. Before that, I worked at a group home for a year. It was pretty much the same. I'm just kidding. Our students are much better than that. But if you deal with people who don't listen, like they already have their mind made up about something, don't they? Usually these people are typically pretty uh, angry individuals too. You can't tell them anything. They're slightly rebellious. They already have their mind made up. They're not even listening to you because they already have a response conjured up before you even get done saying your sentence. Why is that? James 1, 19 through 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. People who are quick to speak and slow to listen are generally angry and rebellious. They already have their minds made up about how they're going to respond to a situation. Uh, Another client of mine was someone who struggled with self-injury. They were very much this way. They already had their minds made up about things. Even though that we had fantastic sessions and we had a lot of breakthrough, she would confess to me that sometimes she would leave the session, go to Walmart or the closest place, buy the resources that she needed to do the act of self-injury. She said, something I just have my mind already made up. The enemy uses a mindset to set up permanent residence in our lives. A resistance to truth. People with a rebellious mindset usually have a resistance to truth. John 8.32 says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If the truth sets you free, then a lie keeps you in prison. If you don't resist the devil, then it just sets up residence in your thoughts. He wants you to resist the truth. If you are beat as a child and you believe that you are damaged goods, you're embracing a lie. And you can't even accept the truth that All things work for the good of those who love God. And if you can't accept the truth, then you'll never be able to take hold of the power of forgiveness, which is what you would need to release yourself from the lie in the first place. The enemy wants us to develop a resistance to truth. No matter how much good happens in your life, if you are resting on a foundation of lies, you will always resist the truth that the Father has for you regarding your identity. So, at the pinnacle here, at the top, we have something that we deal with on a regular basis, and it's called habits. This is what we try to band-aid on a daily basis. This is what we're trying to fix in our lives. If it's substance abuse, just take the substances away. If it's pornography, just take the internet away. Put some software on your phone or your computer. If it's an affair, just quit your job. Don't be around that person. We just try to band-aid the habits that we have developed. 
at the pinnacle of our sinful nature lies a foundation of things we believe that aren't true. If you're trying to deal with the habits, but you never uproot the lie, you can deal with it for a little while, but it just comes back in a different way, a whole lot stronger. Paul says it like this in Romans seven fifteen through 20. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that some, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Paul attributes this dilemma to sin. We all know that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve believing a lie. So how do we escape this? It seems a little bleak. No doubt that your wills are turning. I believe that the Father is actually uprooting some stuff in us right now. Some light bulbs are coming on and we're like, oh, I've been wanting to achieve this goal of Christ likeness. But the decisions that I am making are not getting me to that goal. So could it be that some of the things that I believe that I use to make decisions are based on things that are not true? It's a tough reality that God brought me to, but it's all encouraging to me because in Matthew sixteen thirteen through 19, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Sisera Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do we say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And our flesh is responsible for setting this up in our lives. Our flesh is responsible, but it is our relationship, our dependent relationship on God that reveals the truth and establishes a foundation of freedom for us. Which is the other portion of this. A foundation of truth is what gets us out of this permanent residence with our enemy. John fourteen six says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, in John eight thirty two it says, and the truth will set you free. God sent his son Jesus to establish a foundation of truth and freedom for us. Freedom from death, anger, empty voids, shame, being out of control, and a sense that you are alone. Things start to change in our life 
Things started to change in my life when I started to figure out some of the things that I believed were not true. And so I started to research what the Father was revealing to me. It was nothing that I could have done on my own. There were no books that I could have read. There were no podcasts that I could have listened to. There's no amount of prayer that I could have engaged in. It was just simply the Father probing me every day. Hey, Josh, you ever thought about this thing that you believed for a long time? This may not be true because this is what I'm saying about you and it conflicts with what I'm saying about you. Maybe you shouldn't believe it anymore. Maybe the way that you behave should reflect the new things that I'm revealing to you. That's when things really started to change. And it affected my faith. Hebrews 1, 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If fear leads us to believe the lies our situations tell us, then faith leads to the truth that God reveals to us about our situations. All the folks that I have dealt with who have been victims of sexual assault, they believe that they are worthless. And that is a lie that our situation is telling us as tragic As it is, but the truth is that despite the tragedy, God says that you are His masterpiece and you are priceless. It's our faith that we use as a defense to believe these things, even when there seems to be a lack of evidence. Faith is our defense against the enemy, but I understand that it is hard to believe things that God is saying about us when the evidence doesn't seem to be available. But a relationship is a two-way street. Because if faith is us going our distance to the Father, then a covenant is the Father going his distance to us. Hebrews eleven six and without faith is it impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. I would dare you to find a faithful Christian who is right at the end of their life. And I would ask them the question, has there ever been a time in your life where you feel like that the Father did not reward your faith. I'd be willing to bet Benjamins that they would confirm that there's never been a time where God did not show up and reward their faith. Relationships a two-way street. I have time to tell the story, sweet. So <clears throat> when uh, Brooke was pregnant with uh, our first son, Ezra, I had a wonderful job, a full-time day job making um, not so much. And then I had a, another nighttime part-time job making even less than not so much. And I was projected to make a whopping $23,000 that year with a family of three. The way that our finances worked out showed that we would be in the negative 
$800 a month for their, each month for the rest of the year. I don't know about you, but that's not looking very good for me. I was convicted about my finances. This is not a, a finance message. This is just how God showed up in my life to prove this idea of a covenant. I was convicted of my finances and I said, regardless of this, we should look at tithing. We really need to set up this foundation of stewarding your finances well for our kids after us, even if we suck at it right now. So, at a whopping 23 grand a year, $800 to the negative every month, I started tithing, 10%. I gotta be honest, some things didn't get paid at first. I had a buddy of mine who did some freelance uh, stuff. He hired me for some contracting jobs for sound and lighting, and he landed a gig with Color Me Rad. If you're not familiar with these 5Ks, he landed a contract for the whole East Coast. He asked me if I would help him. So over the course of the summer, every weekend, outside of my two jobs, I would travel for a long weekend to do these jobs for him. I just kept on 10% every time, every time I got paid. At the end of the year, we went to do our taxes. Remember I said that we projected to make a certain amount. So our output of cash, our cash flow out, was exactly $33,064. As I said before, we were only projected to make 23. So because of this odd job that I started to get, there was no consistency, but they just kept coming. At the end, when we filed our taxes, I said that our output was $34,064. Well, our intake was $34,065. That is no joke. God always shows up for his end of the relationship. Out of a covenant, we start to develop the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of Christ the mind of the Lord as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Pull out your WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? If you believe in Jesus and your foundational beliefs are built on the truth, then you know what to do. What would Jesus do? You should know. You have been given the mind of Christ. Being given the mind of Christ is part of our reward for having faith. With the mind of Christ, you can make decisions based on who you are, not based on the circumstances that you're in. An openness to truth is what develops out of having the mind of Christ. And our ability to live a transformed life is contingent upon our openness to the truth. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Transforming our minds from believing lies to the truth allows us to understand God's will. What is God's will? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Healings, speaking an authority over your situations, life-giving encouragement, restored relationships, and openness to the truth defeats our cynicism regarding these things. And finally, once we've uprooted the enemy with this newfound stronghold and God takes permanent residence in our minds, in our decisions, we can produce fruit. Galatians 5, through 23 says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. At the pinnacle of our spirit-led lives lies a foundation built on the truth. So this is just a good picture of what the Father has done in my life over the past 13 years. He's taken me from a place of complete despair filled with lies and he's given me an exciting, adventurous life based on his truth. Even in times of uncertainty, he showed up. He's given me freedom. And he's done the same thing for you. 